0: Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and
1: are their own opinions solely. Want to get into how to treat dysphagia? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we do all of that work to find out what's going wrong with our patient's swallow function. And then we have to think about, well, what are we going to do about it? So, I think we have to, when we see dysphagia, in this population determine, is there a barrier that can be changed that's contributing to my patient's dysphagia? So what really stands out to me is I just had a patient in the past few weeks who had a cervical spinal injury. She is a paraplegic and she is now tracheostomy dependent on and off of the ventilator So when the physicians actually, now some of our trauma surgeons have gotten really excellent and they know that we can get these patients eating quickly. So sometimes they're holding off on the peg placements right away. "Do Do you think you can do it? And I'm always like, yeah, give me a shot, give me a shot. But so I scoped this patient, did fees. And what I saw was that her swallow function actually wasn't that terrible. There wasn't anything shockingly disordered about her swallowing, but there was a little bit of residual that would enter the larynx after she swallowed, but she could not at that time tolerate the cuff deflation. So she had absolutely no airway to no um, patency, no way to cough to clear that material. So it wasn't necessarily her oropharyngeal function that was so bad that would need her to be NPO, but it was her lack of airway patency and therefore lack of cough. And then eventually this patient just required a tracheostomy to downsize And then after the downsize and when she tolerated cuff deflation, she had adequate patency for a cough and had the same more or less swallow function. But because she had that patency to cough to clear just penetration, a normal amount of penetration that would enter the larynx, she was able to eat. So I think we can troubleshoot just simple things like, well, they can't cough to protect their airway. So let's just give them a shot at that before we make long-term decisions. Awesome. Yeah. So troubleshooting, I like to say you need to troubleshoot whatever can be troubleshot. So (laughs) anything that you could think of to fix, to help your patient, um, try to do that first before you're making really long-term recommendations. And then let's see. So we want to just overall for these patients, increase the swallow frequency. I think that their swallow frequency is just reduced because of their reduced sensation and the fact that they've been in peel for so long. So if they have a reflexive swallow trigger, I'm usually giving ice chips at their bedside. It's a relatively benign bolus. If aspirated, it's what, about one ml of water. So we're performing really aggressive oral hygiene in these patients. But so we're doing trials with ice chips, getting them swallowing more frequently. I usually have patients on a modified ice chip protocol just to increase their swallow frequency throughout the day. I did see one article out there on an ice chip protocol and just watching the changes in secretion management just from giving a patient a few ice chips. So I think that's a really useful tool in this population. And then I like to do expiratory muscle strength training for these patients. Well, so that's the goal. So I I don't have access in my hospital yet. I'm working on getting actually a resistance trainer. So I can't call it strength training, I guess. If you have access to a resistance trainer, then that would be an excellent, excellent tool. But we have access to peak expiratory flow meters So I can just use that tool as essentially biofeedback for the patient just to facilitate expiratory flow, which relates to their cough strength and their ability to protect their airway. So even sometimes just the pure, even though there's no resistance, maybe these patients are too weak to even overcome any resistive load in the first place. So just the biofeedback of blowing into a peak flow meter and seeing that they need to push a little bit further can help. So I like to do that. And then I like to do some effortful pitch glides. So just to improve the laryngeal vestibule closure, which is an issue in most of these patients, just by means of their prolonged endotracheal intubations. So effortful pitch glides, Yeah. And then we use these sometimes even as a biofeedback tool. So that's been really cool. Awesome. Most patients, once they've done it once, they're like, "Mm, I'm not sure I really want to do it again. Do I need to? Yeah. Yeah. So how long, Kelsey, um,
0: how, I guess, how long do you usually get with these patients? I know someone was saying to me that they used to get patients for like a few weeks and now it seems like, you know, there's such a push to get them you know, decrease their length of stay. So how, you know, I love that you're talking about doing treatment, but I feel like a lot of acute care therapists say like, I don't even get to do treatment because they're in and out so fast.
1: Right. Well, I definitely see that trend in other patient populations. My stroke patients, for example, I feel like I blink and they're gone, but I mean, I don't think that the decreased length of stay has affected my ICU mechanically ventilated patients too much because they, they they're just going to wean at their own pace. So there's, you know, there's not at some point we can do everything we're going to do, but if they're not ready, they're not ready. So, I mean, to my knowledge, no one's getting discharged while on the vent still, if it's not a chronic, chronic condition, if it's an acute condition. So I haven't seen that change too much. I definitely think that I get these patients for several weeks to work with them. But again, I'm at a trauma center and some of our multi traumas, they're so severe that they stay with us for months. Even I guess I've had some patients for two or three months. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think also it just depends on your population, but there are a lot of socioeconomic issues that we're working with too, with our population and lack of insurance. So that causes some difficulties with discharge disposition. So I think we do have maybe a longer length of stay for some of those issues. But yeah, for most of our mechanically ventilated patients, I think I get a few weeks with them, which I really enjoy.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. Have you done MDTP? Kelsey? I have not. And okay. Every time I've looked at it, it's full. I know. It always is. I, I would I would just love to hear your feedback on it because okay. I think you would be someone that would use it exactly the way that it's supposed to be used. And okay. a lot of people say, you know, because it's something that should be used right away, mm-hmm. you know. And I always say it'd be great for acute care therapist to start using it right away.
1: Oh, um, but then
0: kind of the pushback is like, well, I only get them for three, four days. So right. you know, am I really going to start this protocol? So, right.
1: But that I, I should definitely, definitely take that because yeah. I think that could be really good for us. And I, I don't know how we we manage this, but our organization is really exceptional and they staff us really well. So I usually staff enough SLPs so that we're seeing everyone on our census three to five days per week. Most Most of our patients who we're seeing for dysphagia are getting five days per week of swallow treatment and they're hardly ever skipped. And I staff so that we get I think six to nine patients per day. And if you have instrumentals that day, fees or video swallows, maybe even fewer. So I think that we also get a long length of time with our patients. I spend like an hour probably. That's so nice. Most of my patients. Yeah. And I really make an effort too, just because our our physicians definitely appreciate it that we are not trying to prolong their length of stay because they're pushing and we promise them if you get us involved, that's not our objective. Our objective is to get their swallow studies done as soon as possible. So usually if I receive a consult for a clinical swallow evaluation and I deem that that patient needs a fees or a video swallow, I do it same day most yeah. of the time. So sometimes I see the patient clinical swallow eval, fees. I've even also done a video. swallow on the patient same day, it's like half of my whole day on one patient. But then you might get to the end of it and say, you know what? You don't need me. You need medical intervention. And then I don't have to waste visits after that following up on something that I wasn't going to benefit the patient with anyways. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. I love that. There's, I, there's just so much to consider with, you know, what we can do and what we can't do. And right. I, you know, I think sometimes we've gotten so caught up in this whole payer source of, like you said, we have to see them every day for this many minutes and we have to do anything in our power to get them better. And sometimes things aren't in our power. So
1: Right. Exactly. Like yesterday, I got an order for a patient who acutely developed dysphagia. She stopped eating. She had actually been to our facility. So I'd already done a video swallow on her for a different issue before, and I knew her swallow was normal. So then she developed this difficulty swallowing acutely and she was very aphasic. So she would gesture to show me that her throat was painful and that swallowing was causing her severe pain. So I elected to just same day do a fees. And I just saw that there was diffuse, severe edema and erythema of the entire pharynx and larynx. So then I called the attending physician, asked for an ENT consult. ENT came and said it's bacterial pharyngitis and laryngitis. And you just need IV antibiotics and steroid. So then I said, oh, well, there's nothing I can do for that. And then I signed off same day. Yeah. yeah. So some, if you didn't do an instrumental exam right away, you might have checked on this patient, their diet tolerance 10 times and like making her do effortful swallows or something when her pharynx yeah. is just edematous. That's brutal.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm so glad you shared that. I think that's so many times I, I, I feel like more times than not I find Things that we need to pass off for medical intervention, right? And yeah, it just it kills me that that some SLPs still aren't getting the instrumentals that they need to
1: do our job. Yeah, exactly. Because we we can't we want to fix everything. I know. (laughs) We just we can't fix it all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think I think doing instrumentals is just so great because it just helps you know when it's not your place, when it's not something that, that you can deal with. So, yeah.
0: I, and I just think it brings our profession so much, even makes it that much more valuable right? because, you know, we're not just guessing, you know, we're actually giving them concrete information about, yes, this patient needs to see ENT, this patient needs to see GI. Right. And I think that's just, helps to value our profession some more.
1: Exactly. I think that there has been just this huge shift in the way that our physicians kind of respect us as a team since they realize the diagnostic information we can provide them. So I had a patient who was really young in his 20s and he presented to our emergency department multiple times with recurrent pneumonia and he had no medical history, recurrent pneumonia, and severe malnutrition. And eventually he was admitted. And the infectious disease doctor said, you know what? I think that we need speech pathology on this case. And I went in. He has no medical history. He denies any difficulty swallowing. But then I have, it. I find an abnormal cranial nerve exam. And then I give him some trials and I see him swallowing five times for a small sip of water. And he says, it's always been this way. I say, well, we need to figure out what it is. And then I did both fees and video swallow study. And I just saw this diffuse weakness. And I did a video swallow too to see, is this systemic? Does it also extend down into the esophagus? We can screen the esophagus too. And then Realized, yes, it was just diffuse muscular weakness. So we made a referral to the neurologist who came in and diagnosed a myotonic dystrophy that was onsetting in his 20s. So I think that physician was like, wait a minute, no one could figure this out. For months and months and months, he's presenting with recurrent pneumonia. We get speech on the case, they refer to Neuro, and he gets a diagnosis done. Yeah. And yeah, same thing. I, I feel like I've had a few of those ALS, really atypical presentations of ALS and speech can recognize that through a good cranial nerve exam and through instrumental swallow exams. And then, you know, that so, so many patients like this. And I think it's really useful the physicians really start to notice when yeah. you step in, you make the immediate appropriate referral and that results in their diagnosis and then a new treatment plan. Yeah. So. I think they're really going to take notice if we make really appropriate referrals and give them hints as to where do we think this etiology could be coming from. It's not Uh. our place to say this patient had a stroke, but you can say, well, I see only unilateral weakness. This is really concerning me. Can you do some brain imaging Yeah, lead them in the right direction? Yeah.
0: Can I let you step up on your soapbox about cranial nerve exams for a minute?
1: Oh my God, I love cranial nerve (laughs) exams. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
1: so I, yeah.
0: Because I feel like I hear all the time, well, I'm in acute care. We don't have time to do that.
1: What? It takes two (laughs) minutes, two minutes. I know we're busy in acute care, but you have two minutes, I promise you. Yeah, so I think it's so important because all of the time I read in Physician notes cranial nerves 2 through 12 intact. And then I show up and I go, Oh my gosh, I don't think these are intact. These don't look very intact to me. So I think it just helps us to distinguish where do we think is the most likely source of this patient's dysphagia and who do I need to refer to. So if I have a really abnormal cranial nerve exam, I'm going to, and dysphagia symptoms, I'll refer to a neurologist. When I have a normal cranial nerve exam and dysphagia symptoms, it might change my course. I might want to refer to ENT or GI, right? So I think that it gives us a lot of useful information. I don't think it's a step that can ever be skipped in any clinical swallow exam because the PO trials themselves give us such little actual information at the bedside. In my opinion, a clinical swallow exam is a series of screens. So the first step is just the medical record review. What are the patient's historical risk factors for dysphagia? How probable is it that my patient has a chronic dysphagia that even might be undiagnosed? And then our swallow exam is the cranial nerve exam. And then it's a laryngeal function exam. What's my patient's cough strength? What is their maximum sustained phonation time? What is their SZ ratio? All of those things I, I'll do in a cute carrot. Each one takes a few seconds, honestly. And I would much rather invest my time in doing all of those things and getting data on possible pathology than on giving water and getting a cough. Was that a cough? Was Was that a throat clear? Was that not? Did you swallow once? Did you swallow twice? Who really knows, right? So I think that the other information is so much more useful.
0: Yeah. I love that so much, Kelsey. I I know when I go in to do fees too, I feel like when someone, you know, when an SLP tells me, I did a cranial nerve exam and this and this and this were all off, I'm like, yes, thank you. Like, thank you for doing that. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's what we all need to be doing. Yeah. You know, that's what attending physicians need to be doing. It's what everyone needs to be doing on your patients. And it helps you recognize acute neuro changes in your patient. So I am supervising a clinical fellow right now. And I have been harping on her on cranial nerve exams for every patient. And every time she tells me about a patient, I go, oh, but tell me their CN CN finding. (laughs) So I've just kind of ingrained this in her. And I worked with a patient one day and then I was off and she was covering for me and she went to check on my patient. And she noticed that I had a normal cranial nerve exam. And then she found an abnormal cranial nerve exam. She found a left facial droop um, that was central, just the lower face. So that was a sign of an upper motor neuron involvement. And then she noticed a slight dysarthria as well. So she called the physician, asked for brain imaging, acute CVA. Oh and no gosh. one had noticed it because yeah. the symptoms yeah. were so subtle and they might be something that only a speech pathologist would know. So yeah. I was so proud of this girl when yeah, she did the awesome. cranial nerve exam and really helped the patient. So, yeah.
0: Oh, excellent, Kelsey. Yeah. Oh, I love my clinical fellow.
1: She's so good. Oh, good. That's also, so great. people out there are saying that they cannot get a clinical fellowship in acute care. And that's so upsetting to me because I was very fortunate and I got my fellowship in acute care and I learned so, so much in my fellowship. It was actually the best experience. I got really, really good mentorship. And I think that was so invaluable in just my development as a professional. So I'm pretty invested now in taking on clinical fellows. And I think that's how we get the best possible clinicians for the setting. So I think it makes me Really upset when I hear that places exclude clinical fellows from from being hired or from applying. Yeah, because where else are they supposed to learn it? And then five years later, they've only been in a school or a skilled nursing facility, and then they come for an interview with their Cs, and then we say, "But you have no acute experience." They're like, "But you wouldn't give it to me."
0: Right, right, right. I know. I know. Some states, there's you know, like billing issues or whatever, but still, it just totally stinks. That's true. Yeah. It it just stinks. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Well, so I think, you know, in states where where it's possible and where your staffing allows for adequate supervision, yeah people should really step up and try to take some clinical fellows out there because honestly they turn into such good clinicians. So
0: me yeah. let, let me ask you, Kelsey, this might be a personal question, but did you did you go to George Washington? Did you go to DC just to go to that college and did you go to Northwestern just to go to that program? Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: I really did. I people even ask me I feel like how how did you get into speech pathology? And I think a lot of people have a really great story of like a personal relationship they had with someone who needed that service or something. And I never really had that, but I what even in high school, I loved neuroscience. We had this kind of faux neuroscience course in high school, and I loved it. And I loved languages. And when I was researching majors for college, I was like, language plus neuroscience equals speech and hearing science. So I think that's kind of what I was seeking out. Yeah. And then, obviously, to learn from Dr. Logoman. Yeah, all in. I was like, I will even endure negative temperatures. Yes, <laughs> to learn from her for dysphagia. So yeah. yeah, I did move around really just for the, for the programs, and then after I graduated, there were no medical SLP jobs in Chicago because it was really oversaturated. I think because there are several schools in that area, so I had to move to where the clinical fellowship acute care job was, and that was in Florida. So you know, I moved for that and you know, I think sometimes you also have to make some sacrifices for what you want in your profession. What do you want to do with your career and how important is that to you? And it's important to me that I wake up every day and I love my job and I'm excited to go to work and I feel like I'm helping people and I'm not just, you know, a slave to billing rules, et cetera. So acute care was really important for me. So I just moved for, to make that happen. Oh, Kelsey,
0: I think you've just said everything I've been trying to say for months. You've just said it so eloquently, but that, that's what I, you know, people always complain, well, I can't find anything in my area. And it's like, well, have you looked outside of your area? And they're like, well, no, and it's like, yeah. just, you might have to move. I mean, if that's, you know, what you have to do, I mean, I've moved a ton, <laughs> right? but I love what I do and yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it's all about priorities and what's your priority is being close to your family or whatever is drawing you to a location. Is that your priority? Then you might need to take a position that doesn't bring you everything you ever wanted, but then also don't be upset about it every day. Make the best of it and do the best you can in that role. Or if what you need is that like overwhelming sense of fulfillment and happiness and joy going to work exactly what you want to do, then you might need to sacrifice something and go get it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that people should really just go for what they want. Yeah.
0: I agree. I love that so much. I think, you know, and, and I don't think I think people think it has to be like a permanent thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you went to Florida to do your clinical fellowship. You weren't planning on staying there for twenty years. You right. know? And I think I, I try to tell people like, even if you can just move and go work someplace for a year or two, get that experience and then mm-hmm. now you have that experience on your resume right. to start applying to places where you, you know, quote unquote want to live.
1: Exactly. And yeah, I think what the people don't realize that even. Some um, if you really desperately want to work in acute care, you might only need one to two years of experience before you can get hired somewhere in your ideal location. I mean, I do hiring for our department all the time. And I actually get so few applications from people with acute care experience. Almost nobody has it. I think people might just stay where they are once they get that position. So if I get an application of someone with one year acute care experience, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this person's so experienced. I love it. So I think that, and they automatically get an interview. So I think that if you can just even go somewhere for one year to learn a little bit and get really good mentorship, then it'll take you a long way.
0: Awesome. Thanks for sharing that Kelsey.
1: Yeah. All right. So where are we? Do we do we have anything I don't know. else to well, cover? Where am I? Even? <laughs> I keep getting off on tangents oh, with you. <laughs> let's see. Oh, we talked about how to treat dysphagia. Yeah, I think that I overall just had a few takeaways. Yeah. So I think that one of the big myths that you talked about is that mechanical ventilation does not automatically make someone unsafe to eat and we have to get over this. We're better than this. We need to move past this. We've learned this. We have to stop relearning the same thing. Let's move forward. We just can't be intimidated by a ventilator anymore. If you didn't learn about ventilators, do some self-study. I can tell you that 99% of what I know about ventilators, I learned through self-study. And you know what, that, sometimes you just have to suck it up and that's the only way you're ever going to learn it. So invest some time, read, and it doesn't have to be expensive continuing ed courses. I will just browse online, Google Scholar Mechanical Ventilation and read articles and follow link to link to link to link and keep reading about it. And I think just reading a few minutes per day is going to really help. I got really lost in like a vent web on Wikipedia. You did? Like I, yeah, I just was on
0: Wikipedia <laughs> and I was looking at some like vent setting and then I was like, oh, this is good. This is, and I just like got sucked into it
1: for like hours. And I'm like, oh my God,
0: Wikipedia just taught me so much about vents. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It's so
1: dangerous. And we all yeah. know that like Wikipedia is not like the best right. source of information, but you know what? It's pretty good. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But it yeah. just kept, like you said, it just kept linking me and linking me and linking me. And I was like, oh my God, where am I now? Yeah, you just dive deep into the world of
1: ventilators, (laughs) my favorite world world of all time. (laughs) But yeah, so I think at least even just Wikipedia is such a good, because it's in such layman's terms, is such a good place to start. And then if you want to fact check and verify the accuracy of what you've learned, you can do that through scholarly sources, but that is a good place to start. Yeah. So I think we just have to stop being intimidated by a ventilator, do everything in our power to learn everything that we can about mechanical ventilation so that we're more knowledgeable and that physicians and respiratory therapists will trust us with their patients. And then we need to really understand the urgency Of intervention with this population. So, the wait until they're less sick approach is the worst thing we can be doing for them. So, I think we need to realize this is an urgent matter. We need to get in there. We need to advocate for our patients and really have a presence in ICU, I think is one of the most important things. Be present, attend their rounds. I have to share a secret is that I have never been invited to ICU rounds, but I (gasps) go. (laughs) <laughs> well, now they expect me there so I wasn't, it wasn't initially like Kelsey speech pathology will you attend rounds I was just like oh my gosh they're rounding at 10 a.m every morning in ICU and they're talking about my patients so I'm just going to be in ICU at 10 a.m when they're rounding and then now they expect me there so I think that you can kind of Push to get yourself involved, really. And I think the more that physicians see your presence in ICU and realize that you're just this resource available to them all day, every day, they'll start to utilize you more. Yeah. And then, what else do I want? I have so many soapbox? Points. Oh my God Kelsey, I want to
0: like give you a standing ovation right now. I just <laughs> I love that so much.
1: I feel like I, you're also someone who would invite yourself to wrap. Yes. like show up knock knock (laughs) yeah excuse me are you talking about my patients yeah (laughs) yeah I mean why not honestly there, there are patients too and we can contribute really insightful information to the medical team yeah yeah so yeah just the other day I was saying I showed up to rounds and I was like, oh, I was working with this patient and she's in assist control. She can't tolerate a speaking valve yet because I think there's just too much edema. The upper airway's not patent yet, but she holds her SATs really well with the cuff deflated when the respiratory therapist compensated that tidal volume a little bit for the leak intensivist. What do you think about changing the order set maybe so that they could be with the cuff deflated all day so that she can both voice and oxygenate. And the intensivist was like, oh, yeah, sure. Boop, boop, boop. And then one order in the computer. And then my patient's weaning so much faster and doing really well. So I think we can give them really, really good information that they are always surprised that we contribute. Like, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that you guys did that. When I th- i
0: mean, that just sounds, again, sounds so intuitive. It's like the fastest way to get something done is to go right to the source. You right. know, instead it's like, oh, I should probably call a meeting with the intensivist to see where we're at and see if maybe we can do this. And it's like, no, just... Show up and just show up, and yeah.
1: I know, and I like have a really bad habit of kind of stalking some of the physicians. Like, I'll always know someone will be like, Where is Dr. M? and I'm like, Oh, he's on six east right now because yeah. I just saw him. I have this like <laughs> mental map of where all the physicians are, so if they're not answering my page right away, I can just go, Oh, funny to see you here, Dr. Yeah. M, but I would just want to <laughs> speak to you about blah blah blah. So, um, yeah, I think we just cannot be afraid to communicate with the physicians. And once you show that when you stop them and tell them something, you're giving them useful information, then I think they're going to recognize that and they're going to start stopping you. Oh, hey, wait, wait, you have five of my patients today. Let's go, let's huddle about this really quickly. So it's kind of turned into that. So I appreciate it that way around. Yeah, and I don't know why, why
0: some SLPs think that they need the invite all the time. You know, like I, I have such good relationships with some of the doctors that I work with, like even some of the doctors, like the medical directors at facilities I work at will like text me like, mm-hmm. how did that case go today? You know, and it's like, did I ever think that I would have this type of relationship with some of these doctors five years ago? Hell no. no. But it just I just kept showing up and I kept showing them, you know, the value that our profession can bring and what our instrumentation can show and, you know, how we just play such a huge role in this big picture. And now I have such a mutual respect with these physicians. You know, I didn't just, you know, sit down and have a meeting with them and, you know, tell them everything I could do. I just showed them and I constantly kept in contact and kept in the loop with things. Right. So, and,
1: yeah, people think it's just going to be one scheduled meeting that's going to change the course of history at <laughs> the hospital. And it's like it's a constant effort. You have to build the relationships and you have to maintain the relationships by right. continuously showing them speeches here, we're a presence here, we can help your patients, this is what we do, this is what I'm contributing to the case. And yeah, I've I've definitely posted something like that on Facebook before saying, "Look at this text a physician gave me." thank you so much. Speech was invaluable in this case. You helped us find the diagnosis. And then some people respond like, oh, I wish my physicians were like that. Like, what do you think that, do you think that I was (laughs) the luckiest SLP in the whole world in my hospital by pure sheer luck was handed the most SLP friendly physicians you so, are Kelsey. Yeah. yeah. You I'm
0: ordered catering fun. for them that day and everything. Yes. Right. Yeah.
1: So it's like, you know what, it's, it, your physicians, it didn't all start that way. You can make that happen with your own physicians. So it's not luck. And I think people say, well, yeah, I, I mean, they're resistant to speech or they don't know what we do. Well, what, what role are you playing in improving that for yourself? Right. right. So, yeah. Right. Oh,
0: Kelsey, thank you so much for
1: sharing all of this. Of course. Do I have any more soapboxes, any more spiels to give? I think also I definitely have taken on a lot of responsibility in training other speech pathologists to be confident with this population and others, but I think that so many of them are saying, oh my gosh, thank you so much. No one's ever taken the time to explain this to me. No one's ever given me 10 hours of hands-on, one-on-one supervision with these patients. So I just think that, you know, I know I'm not, I'm not the only speech pathologist out there who can do a speaking valve on the vent. You're out there. I know you're out there. And I think that people need to step up and start offering mentorship too. Because if we're not mentoring the newest generation of clinicians that are just coming out of school, then what all of this is just going to die with us or something, you know? So I think we have to keep passing it along and training new SLPs and really investing in them. Every time we hire someone new, I'm like, you're an investment. We're investing in you. We're going to give you hundreds of hours of Training, overall fees, video swallows, trachs, vents, TBIs, all of these things, they all need hours and hours and hours of hands-on mentorship. And you can squeeze it in your day. Like I'm in acute care and I'm probably three beds down the hall anyway. So they can just call and say, can I get your opinion here? You can just pop right in for a few minutes.
0: Yeah. And I love that you said that because I feel like there's such a a myth with thinking that like, I can't ever find anyone to mentor me. There's no time. No one can ever do it. And I feel like I've had so many conversations lately with SLPs that are like, I just got this new PRN gig and they're going to mentor me for like so many hours. Like I had no idea. And I Mm -hmm. was talking to this one girl that just got this new um, PRN job and she's like, I can't believe the amount of time they spend, you know, mentoring me. It's incredible. And, and it's like, I hate that our expectations are that we're going to get no mentorship And we're surprised that we do, you know? Right. And it's like, ask in the interview, you know, ask before you even apply for these jobs. Like, um, are you going to send me off on dysphagia island on day one? Or is someone going to kind
1: of help hold my hand, show me the ropes for a little bit, you know, before you throw me to the wolves. That should absolutely be part (laughs) of the conversation in an interview. And something I always bring up when we're hiring either full-time or per diem is what is your expectation for training? And does that align with what I can offer you? Because sometimes we are at a point where we really can't, we can't, I'm taking, I have two clinical fellows right now and I have a group of some newer to medical SLP SLPs. So at certain months, I might not be able to take on another one if I don't want to reduce the quality of my other mentorship. So at some points we're hiring and I say, you know what, we really need someone who's coming in with experience who can kind of hit the ground running with just the exception of hospital orientation. And then other times where we're like, you know what, we can really invest in somebody right now. And we're pretty... Upfront, I think about what it's going to be. I love that. It's awesome. Yeah. All right. What about competency, Kelsey? Competency. Competency for what? For for fees? For videos? For traks and vents? So anything. So what? What if I'm
0: if I'm not sure if I'm competent in something?
1: Well, okay. I've de- I've definitely revised the competencies for all areas, all modalities at our facility. And I think the most important last step of the competency list, like you can list, you must know X, Y, Z, this whole checklist of facts that someone must have memorized, right? But I think the last and final piece of any competency puzzle is that both the new clinician and the mentor need to be in a mutual agreement that this person is competent. So it goes both ways. So I have for, you know, for fees or for video swallows or for trace events, a minimum number of patients you must have seen and in interpreted exams and written adequate reports, all of those things, as well as the basic facts you must be able to verbalize. But at the end of that, it's always, are we both in agreement that you're competent? So, you know, sometimes I usually find it the, that the new clinician is like, I'm not sure if I'm ready. And I usually have to be like, no, I I really think you are. Why don't you try yeah. one on your own and call me if you need me? But yeah, I think it's important that both are on the same page because just doing a random number that you come up with of exams or seeing a random number of patients with this diagnosis does not make you competent. Yeah. So I think that people need to have a really good, really good self-awareness of their skills and their lack of skills. They need to know what they don't know, hopefully. No, you know, I don't know enough about this. I know I need to learn more. I don't know what it is, but I need to learn more. So you need to have that self-awareness. And I think anyone in our profession needs to have self-awareness to be an ethical clinician.
0: And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying I'm I'm not competent in that area. I need to send you to somebody else who is more competent in that area. Right. I mean, I think we have such a broad field that I know there's are some areas that I just would not feel comfortable taking that responsibility from that patient that thinks that I'm going to provide them with this excellent treatment when it's really not my bread and butter, you know, right. and I'm not afraid to admit that.
1: Yeah, I think we all have to be honest with ourselves. I can't yeah. I can't work in a school right now because I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, I would need so much training. So it goes both ways. We all need to be, you know, aware. We need to be honest. We need to be honest with the people we're training about our own competency.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Kelsey. This is so, so good.
1: Thank you. I think
0: we covered all of your takeaways, but do you have any final, final takeaways?
1: Final, final, final takeaways. I don't know. Just, I love (laughs) vents. Yeah. It's just such a fun population to work with. And I really hope that at some point in every medical SLP's career, they get their hands on this population. They get mentorship with this population and they get to really kind of see the good outcomes that can happen. And I've told you, I think, my favorite, my, my favorite part about working in acute care is the acuity of illness, not because I love seeing really sick people, but because we can make the most immediate, largest impact on their quality of life. And there is nothing better in the entire world than giving someone their first sip of water or giving someone back their voice for the first time in weeks. I think it's just so rewarding so yeah i i love it awesome
0: thank you so much kelsey this is so good
1: thank you for having me what a fun chat
0: so if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge then please leave a review on itunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming